This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Breakfast, go and go and whatever you need and come and go during, during the shir if you want an extra. Um, so we're extraordinarily privileged this morning to have uh, Rabbi Daniel Gladstein with us, who's flown in from America only about two days ago, went straight up to Manchester. And one question I want to ask at the end is how you do it, Rabbi. <laughs> how you do it, but... Um, uh, it's amazing. Uh, if you haven't heard of Rabbi Glatzny, he's uh, born in Brooklyn, I think. Yes. Now lives in Cedarhurst, which is just around the corner from JFK in New York, in Queens. And there are a few Jews in Queens, I understand. Um, he's the leader of a community there, a rabbi of a community, as well as being a, a huge star in the sort of rabbinic firmament in, in the U.S. It gives an amazing number of shirim, and you can catch a lot of them on... Torah Anytime, which is where my friend Howard here, who's a co-sponsor of this morning, thank you Howard, um, um, found your shirim originally. Um, someone said to me this morning, you look taller than you do on Torah Anytime, because <laughs> you only see, you know, like the top half, we didn't know how tall you were, so you do look that, and um, so we're, we're, as a community here, we're just extraordinarily lucky to capture an hour of Rabbi Gladstein's time. He's going off to how long for? Is that an hour okay? I've heard varying opinions ranging between 15 minutes and an hour. Okay. You can fill the time. I think it'll be nice to do maybe 45 minutes and 15 minutes for questions at the end. That would be really nice. Is that okay? Um, And the topic this morning is words of Torah, the DNA of the universe. So you're about to discover how things work. Sephorum? Oh, there's Sephorum if you want to buy them at the end, is that correct? And he's written a number of wonderful Sephorum. One on Hanukkah, I think, is that right? Which is with, from, with Art Scroll on, what's it called, Spreading the Light? or um, The Light and the Splendor. The Light and the Splendor. So that's recommended for this time of year. Rabbi Glatstein, welcome. Thank you so much, Lori, for the very warm introduction. Thank you to today's sponsors. Um, it's an honor to be here. It is my first chance to be in a united synagogue. And I would like to share with you this morning an analysis of a number of the narratives of the Chumash that I'm sure we're all familiar with. We've heard the story many times. And I would really like to revolutionize our perspective and understanding of these narratives and turn everything on its head. By the time this year is over, everything we ever thought about the way things played out in the Chumash will have a completely new take and a new view. There's a very interesting narrative that actually does not appear anywhere in the Chumash. And that is if you calculate the lifetime of Yaakov Avinu, anybody know how many years did Yaakov Avinu live? 147 years. And if you make a calculation of how these years played out, there seems to be a missing 14 years. There are 14 years that are unaccounted for. And uh, the Mefarshim, uh, most notably Rashi, is perplexed what happened to the 14 missing years of the lifetime of Yaakov Avinu. 
And Rashi in this week's parsha, remember when Yaakovina was running away from Esav, and he heads toward the land of his uh, northward in Israel, and he heads to the Temple Mount, and the pasuk says, "Vayishkav v'makoymahu." He slept in that place, and that's a very difficult expression. He slept in that place. No kidding, he slept in that place. Nobody has ever slept anywhere that wasn't that place. You can't sleep somewhere and be in a different place. So obviously, he slept in that place. Rashi's troubled. Why does it have to say he slept in that place? Rashi says it's to make an inference. What's the inference? He slept in that place. But the 14 years that he spent learning in the yeshiva of Ever, he didn't sleep at night. And Yaakovino learned 14 consecutive years in the yeshiva of Ever. Now, just parenthetically, the words of Rashi. We know Rashi was the greatest of all the medieval commentaries. Every word of Rashi is precise. In fact, there is a tradition that Rashi fasted 613 ta'anesim before he wrote his commentary on the Chumash. Aside from that, every word of Rashi has mystical meaning as well. So it's not just a commentary that a rabbi happened to write. These are the eternal words of, actually, Rashi's my grandfather, directly. He's also yours. 80% of all Ashkenazim are direct descendants of Rashi because in... Uh, the times of Rashi, you know how many Ashkenazic Jews there were about a thousand years ago? 10,000 Ashkenazic Jews. And Rashi had five daughters. So statistically, it's almost impossible for an Ashkenazi not to come directly from Rashi. Which means that you come from King David, which is also good to know. Anyway, <coughs> Rashi points out that he slept in that place, but the 14 years he spent in the yeshiva, he did not sleep at night doesn't mean he didn't doze off, it doesn't mean he didn't fall asleep, but he didn't lie down in a bed for 14 consecutive years. Now, another point of note is that it says the 14 years, not he learned in the yeshiva of Ever, he was shimesh in the house of Ever. Shimesh means he did service. What kind of service? And this is a very important principle. And that is, when it comes to Torah, it's not enough to study Torah. It's not enough, okay, I went to a Torah class, and I sat there, the class began at 9.30 a.m., it ended at 10.15, I sat there, and I took notes, and then when the class is over, I went home. It's not enough. One has to serve Tamide Chachamim. Serve Tamide Chachamim means one has to associate with them, ask them questions, walk them to the shir, walk them back from the shir, have discussion with them, because the, the material alone is not sufficient. One has to try to acquire the Torah outlook, which can only be acquired by the association with genuine Tamide Chachamim. And that's what Yaakov Avinu did for 14 years. He was Shimesh Beves Ever. Okay? So it's a little bit puzzling that you would think that these 14 years of the life of Yaakov Avinu were seminal years in his achievement. You would think these were important years of his lifetime. You would think there would be a Pasuk in the Chumash that said, Vayilmoid Yaakov you would think the Pasuk would say, Yaakov Avinu spent 14 years in the yeshiva. And it was a big yeshiva, and the yeshiva cost 20 million pounds to build, let's say. And, and uh, they had hired an architect, and they had great designs, and the yeshiva had this beautiful view. Over, we don't know anything about the yeshiva, and the Torah doesn't even say that Yaakov Avinu spent time in this yeshiva. All it says, he slept in that place, from which we could figure out he didn't sleep somewhere else. Where is that? In the yeshiva, where he spent 14 years. 
Another interesting Rashi is in Parshas Chayisara, number two on your sheet. Anybody know how many years Yishmael lived? 137. Give this in America, we say, give this man a cigar. Okay, 137 years. So Rashi points out, well, 137 years, well then it would come out that we're missing 14 years in the lifetime of Yaakov Avinu that are unaccounted for, so that must mean Yaakov Avinu spent 14 years studying in the yeshiva. Again, does the Torah say that Yaakov spent 14 years learning in the yeshiva? No. It's something that we could figure out based on the lifetime of Yishmael. So just say black and white, Yaakov Avinu spent 14 years studying in the yeshiva. Is it embarrassing for us? Is this a source of shame that Yaakov spent 14 years learning in the yeshiva? Why do we always have to figure it out? Why is the Torah dancing around the issue? Just say black and white. Yaakov Avinu spent 14 years learning in the yeshiva. Now, why did he spend 14 years learning in the yeshiva? So Rashi says in last week's parsha, he was hiding. Who was he hiding from? Esav. Esav's brother wanted to kill him. So Yaakov Avinu spent 14 years hiding in the yeshiva. Rashi says, Nitman bevesever. He hid in the house of Eber. Now, you know, Yaakov Avinu is a smart man. He's a great tzaddik. He doesn't seem to be that innovative in terms of coming up with hiding spots. If you're Esav and you're looking for your brother Yaakov, where's the first place you would check? The yeshiva! What did Yaakov Avinu do? He was an accountant. He sold the car insurance. What, what did Yaakov Avinu do? He's Isha Ohalit, um, Yoshev Ohalim. That's what he did. He was Yoshev the Yeshiva. <laughs> he spent his whole life in the Yeshiva. So Esav's looking for Yaakov. So where does Yaakov go to hide in the Yeshiva? What kind of ridiculous hiding spot is that? How did Esav not find him in the Yeshiva? Where was Esav looking? In the pool halls? In the basketball arena? In the soccer field? That's not where Yaakov Inu hung out. Yaakov Inu was Yoshev Ohalim. So what kind of ridiculous hiding spot was it that Yaakov was hiding in the yeshiva? How could Esav not find him? Anybody here about Kore? Anyone here read from the Torah? What's your name, Howard? Yes. Howard. So Parshas Vayetze <clears throat> enjoys a feature that almost no Parsha enjoys, and that is it's a Parsha Susuma. Parsha Susuma means it's sealed shut. Now, there are different levels of a Parsha being sealed shut. For instance, Parsha's Vayechi is Susuma Legamri. It's completely sealed. What does that mean, it's completely sealed? That means if you were reading the Torah, and you would look at the end of Vayigash, you would not be able to find the beginning of Vayechi, because there is literally no space between the end of Vayigash and the beginning of Vayechi. All you have is one letter space. You wouldn't even know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't know it's a new Parsha, you wouldn't even know it's a new Pasuk. It's completely sealed shut. And that Rashi explains, the reason is, because as Yaakov Avinu was about to pass on, <clears throat> the Jewish people were in bondage, and their eyes and their hearts were being sealed shut from the tsara, from the, from the difficulties of the Shibud. And therefore, the Parsha is sealed shut. What does the Parsha being sealed shut have to do with the fact that the eyes and hearts of the Jewish people are being sealed shut from the Shibud of Mitzrayim. What is the Parsha, what does the placement of the Parshios have to do with the status of the Jewish people? But Parsha's Vayetze is also sealed shut, but not completely. What that means is, there is a space between the end of Taldois and the beginning of Vayetze, but instead of Vayetze being on the next line, 
It's just a couple spaces apart. Why? Says the Baal HaTurim. You know what the Baal HaTurim was? Baal HaTurim was written by the son of the Tur, the author of the, the Arba Turim. What? The Baal HaTurim is the son of the Rush. Thank you, correct. The Baal HaTurim is the son of the Rush. It's interesting. The, we were just in York on Thursday, and we were at the castle, Clifford's Castle, where many of the Baal HaTosfes were murdered in the year 1190. And they weren't murdered, actually. They committed suicide. And they were commanded by their rabbi, Rabbi Yomtov of Yogne, to uh, commit suicide. And unfortunately, this was a common phenomenon in the Middle Ages of um, Rabbonim who issued a halachic ruling to their students that to avoid being forcibly baptized, they have to commit suicide. The Balhaturim's own wife had to kill herself to avoid being forcibly baptized. So the Balhaturim comments that the reason why Parshas Vayetze is, is sealed shut is because since Yaakov Avinu had to run away and he was in hiding and concealment, so therefore the Parsha is sealed shut and hidden and concealed. You know, like, why does the Parsha have to suffer because Yaakov was, was uh, hiding? Why does the Parsha have to be sealed because Yaakov was hiding? So we say, well, it's a remez, it's a hint. It's a hint to the fact that Yaakov was hiding, so therefore the Parsha is sealed shut. But this requires uh, further analysis. So I want to ask you now two questions. And probably you're familiar with these comments of Rashi. But we may not have had the opportunity to really stop and analyze what is Rashi really telling us. Anybody remember how old was Abraham when he left Haran and he went to the land of Israel? He was 75 years old. The second time. <laughs> that, that's the Pasuk, the, the Chumash says he was 75 years old. How old was Terach, his father, when Abraham left Haran? Terach was 145. Yeah, because Terach was 70 when Abraham was born. So Terach was 70 when Abraham was born. Abraham was 75 when he left to Haran. So that means Terach was 145 when Abraham left to the land of Israel. How old was Terach when he died? Two, excellent. 205 years old. 205 years old. Now, 205. So that means, <clears throat> so let's get, let's get the numbers uh, clear. Avram was 75 when he left Haran. Terach was 70 when Avram was born, which would make Terach 145 when Avram left to Haran. But the Pasuk tells us Terach died at the age of 205, which means that when Avram left to Haran, Terach still had another 60 years to go. And yet the Torah says, then when Avraham Avinu left Charan, Terach died. Vayomos Terach Becharan. So Avraham leaves Charan, and the Pasuk says Terach died. Asks Rashi, what do you mean Terach died? He still had another 60 years to go. Says Rashi, Terach died? Just joking. He didn't really die. And it's not a very nice joke. It's not really nice to say that somebody died and they're alive. Like, hey, where was... Uh, Joe, he wasn't in shul. He died. And then he comes to the shir a few minutes later. Yeah, I was just joking. That's really not proper. Even in America they wouldn't say that. <laughs> so why would the Torah say that Terach died? He still has 60 years to go. Listen to Rashi. Rashi says, 
because Avram Avinu is leaving his father, and his father was elderly, and the Torah doesn't want to say that Avram Avinu left an aged elderly father. People would criticize Avram Avinu. How could you just leave your father like that? So therefore the Torah says he died, even though he didn't die, so that people would not criticize Avram Avinu for leaving an elderly father this way. People won't say anything bad about Avraham because the Torah says Terach's dead. One simple question. But Terach's walking around. And people are going to say, Terach, you know, where's your lunch? Doesn't Avraham make you lunch every day? No, Avraham left to Israel. He left to Israel and he just left you? He forsook you? No, he didn't. I'm dead. You don't, I'm dead. You didn't read the Chumash? The Chumash says I'm dead. Really? Bring me the Chumash. So Tarek takes out the stone edition of the Chumash and he says, you see, it says I'm dead. So therefore, please don't criticize my son Avraham because he didn't leave me elderly because the Chumash says that I'm dead. Did anyone have the Chumash back in Mesopotamia? I mean, could you go to the Mesopotamian library and just take the Chumash out of the library and, and read, Terach is dead? And even if you could have taken the Chumash out, but Terach's walking around. So people say, well, I'm not going to say anything bad about Avraham because the Chumash says Terach's dead. And meanwhile, you're sipping tea together with Terach. Well, what's going on over here? What's Rashi talking about? That the Torah wrote that Terach died so that nobody should criticize Avraham, but Terach's alive and everybody sees him. And Terach's banging away, chiseling out his idols, producing one idol after another, and business is really going good. And people would ask Terach, no, how's business? And he would say, Baruch Hashem. And so what does Rashi mean that the Torah wrote that Terach dies, no one should criticize Abraham, but Terach's alive and everybody sees it? You ever hear of Rivka? The matriarch Rivka, yeah? She's the mother of Yitzchak. The wife of Yitzchak. Excellent. This man is paying attention. <laughs> Rivka is the mother of Yaakov, the mother of Esav. Is her death recorded in the Chumash? Anybody remember? Does it say anywhere that Rivka died? Nowhere. Yaakov Avinu is returning back from the house of Lavan, and Yaakov is told about the death of his wet nurse, Rivka's wet nurse, Devorah Meinekes Rivka. And Rashi says, well, the words the Torah uses is, it, she died in a place called Alon Bachos, which is a plural language. Says Rashi, that symbolizes, that alludes to the fact that somebody else died over there. Who else died? Rivka died. So why doesn't the Torah say openly that Rivka died? Oh, you know why we don't want to, we don't want to say openly that Rivka died because if anybody comes to Rivka's funeral, they're going to say that lady produced that Shegetz Esav, that murderer Esav, and they're going to curse her. So to avoid her shame and embarrassment, the Torah doesn't recall, re, uh, record her death so that nobody curses the womb that produced Esav Harasha. Think about what Rashi is saying. That when Rivka Yimeinu died, it's not recorded in the Chumash. Why? Because we don't, know, we don't want anybody to know that she died, because we don't want anyone to attend her funeral, because then they would curse Rivka, and therefore the Torah hid the fact that she died. The Ramban says even further. The Ramban says Rivka Yimeinu had the most pathetic funeral of all time. Avraham Avinu wasn't there. Avraham Avinu was dead at the time. Yitzchak was blind. He couldn't leave his house. Esav hated his mother. Esav would not come. 
Yaakov Avinu was in Padan Aram. He didn't, he wasn't there. Who's going to bury her? She was like a mace mitzvah. Does nobody can imagine? Our matriarch Rivka had nobody to bury her. The Bnei Ches, the Canaanites, will come and bury her. No, that would be embarrassing to the Jewish people. Therefore, the Torah does not report that Rivka died so that the Canaanites don't come and bury Rivka. What in the world is Rashi talking about? You're telling me the Canaanites got their news? Not from WhatsApp, not from Newsmax. They got their news from the Chumash. As if, uh, how would they know that Rivka died? They would see it in the Chumash. But now that it's not reported in the Chumash, the Canaanites don't know that she died. There's no Chumash available. What is the fact that Rivka's death is recorded or is not recorded? How does that have any bearing on whether people will find out about her death or not? So you're building this really nice house. You didn't know yet, but your wife will tell you eventually. And it's it's a massive house. And it has every feature you could possibly imagine. You come into the house after five years of construction, there are no restrooms in the house. You go to the builder and said, are, are you Adam, what am I supposed to do in this house? It's nice, every, it has every feature. There's no restroom. He said, pal, the architect forgot to draw restrooms in the plans, so I can only build what's in the architectural plans. The, you, the fault is not with me, the fault is with the architect. He forgot to draw it. Whatever's not in the architectural plans will not be in the building. What is the most important concept in Judaism? What is the fu- fundamental concept with which our life is based on? And that is the Mishnah Perkei Avos. Oilam Hazeh. This world is a corridor, it's a hallway, it's a preparation for the world to come. This world is a very short amount of time. This world, we hope we have a long stay, some people have a short stay. And in this short stay in this world, our mission is to amass as many mitzvahs as possible to be able to earn the reward of Olam Haba. That's what life is all about. Olam Hazah Doimel Lefroizdar Bifnei Olam Haba. Isn't it strange that the most important concept in Judaism is not mentioned in the whole Torah? It's not mentioned in the Chumash. Where in the Chumash does it say, do mitzvahs so you can get Olam Haba? Isn't that odd that the, in, the purpose of our existence is not mentioned in the Torah? Yeah, it's mentioned in the Gemara, it's mentioned in the Mishnah, it's not mentioned in the Chumash. Why would the objective of all creation, that's why God created us. Why did God create us in the first place? What, what does He need us to be here for? To eat breakfast, it, gi- it gives God a kick that we eat breakfast. What does Hashem need us here for in this world? Hashem created us because He wanted to do kindness to us. That kindness is the afterlife, Olam Haba. It's just that if you would put us straight in the afterlife, we would be embarrassed about it. It would be unearned. So Hashem says, you know what? I want your enjoyment to be complete, so I'm going to let you earn your Olam Haba. This way when you get there, you'll feel good about what you earned. That's the whole purpose of creation. Why would that purpose be absent from the Chumash? The answer is a very powerful answer. And that is, how did God create the world? Did He have tools? Did He have a, a hammer, um, uh, a building blocks, bricks? What did God use to create the world? What, what are the tools of that craft? The tool that God used to create the world was the Torah itself. The Torah is the Amon, the tool that Hashem used to create the world.
The Zayar HaKadosh says the following very important expression, God looked into the Torah and He created the world, which means the Torah predated the world. The Torah existed 974 generations before the world. The Torah is Kedumala This document, called the Torah, was the architectural plan and the tool that God used to create the world. In fact, the Zayar HaKadosh writes, God opened up the Torah and He read the words, Bereshis bara Elohim es hashamayim, and the Shamayim came into being. V'yes ha'aretz, and the land came into being. And God read the verse, God said there should be light. That's how He created the light. He created the light by reading the words, and God said there should be light. So this document that we all gather in Shul every Shabbos, every Monday, every Thursday to hear, this is not, oh, we're here today to read the ancient document of the Hebrews, which they received on Sinai 3,300 years ago. This is not some kind of archaic document that we have a tradition that the tribal Hebrews t- took out of the land of Egypt. This is the living document with which God creates and runs the world. And you ever realize when a Balkore, when he, re- when he reads the Torah, and he makes one little mistake, and instead of saying, Varachel Ba'a, he says, Varachel Ba'a. So we want to take him, we want to we choke him, we want to remove him from the facility, and never allow him to come back into the synagogue ever again. And in some shuls, they'll throw rotten tomatoes at him. Not in this country, and I'm not going to say in which countries they do that. But it's very dangerous for the Balkari to make him say, what's everybody so worked up about? The guy just m- mispronounced the word. The answer is, the Torah is literally the blueprint of creation. And every letter and dot has to be fine-tuned and exactly precise, because this is the document with which God created the world. And if one letter is slightly off, it could destroy the entire world. The example would be, let's say somebody came into a laboratory and he said, you know, I'm just going to separate the proton from the electron, and no big deal, you know, I'm just going to splice the atom and uh, everybody just relax. He's about to blow up the world. You can't, you can't tamper with the building block of creation. If somebody were to take a parsha in the Torah, and instead of there being one space between the letters, make an extra space, that could destroy the world. If somebody were to move the sun, like half a mile away from planet Earth, so it'd start getting very cold in this room rather quickly, we would all freeze, disintegrate, and cease to exist. Or if somebody would move the sun like a half a mile closer, it would get rather warm in here rather fast, and then we would disintegrate within moments. You can't tamper with the way God formatted the world. And if you can't tamper with the way God formatted the world, you certainly cannot tamper with the architectural plans with which God used to create the world. Now, did any living person ever see the world to come? Anybody here ever, you know, go for a stroll in uh, downtown London and say, oh, that's, that's the world to come? Nobody knows what it looks like. Nobody's ever seen it. It's a Pasuk and Tehillim. Ayin lairasa eloikim zelasecha. No eye has seen it, only God. You got to be there when you get there. But why doesn't God want us to see the world to come? Otherwise we have no free choice. If we knew what Gan Eden was like, if we knew what the afterlife was like, then nobody would have free choice. 
everybody would only choose the good. So God has to keep it uh, to our emunah, to our belief. Now, how does God hide the reality of the afterlife from us? You know how? If it would talk about olam haba in the chumash, then it would have to be in the open reality of creation and we would see it. So God had no choice, but in order to hide Olam Haba from our physical eyes, He had to remove it from the document. He had to remove it from the architectural plans. And now that Olam Haba is not in the document of the Torah, in the, so it's not in the open reality, that was the method with which God hid the reality of Olam Haba from our physical eyes. Whatever is in the open document, you could see, you could perceive, you could experience. Whatever is not in the open document, you cannot see physically. So Yaakov Avinu has a problem. He needs to hide from his brother. How is God going to facilitate Yaakov Avinu hiding from his brother? You know how? Really, the Torah should say, Yaakov Avinu spent 14 years learning in the Yeshiva Shem Va'ever. The problem is, if it would say that, then it would be in the open reality that Yaakov Avinu was sitting and learning in the Yeshiva Shem Va'ever for 14 years. So what God did was, He took out of the document that Yaakov Avinu was learning for 14 years, and it only says it in a roundabout way. He slept over there, but he didn't sleep in the Yeshiva. We could figure it out from the lifetime of Yishmael. And once it's not in the open document that Yaakov spent 14 years learning in the yeshiva, there is no way Esav could perceive and see Yaakov Avinu. He could visit the yeshiva, he could be in the yeshiva, he could be looking with binoculars, he does not see Yaakov Avinu. How's that possible? That doesn't sound reasonable. No. The same way you can't see Olam Haba, because Olam Haba is not written in the Chumash, so by it not being written in the Chumash, it's imperceivable, it's not something you could experience, it's not something you could see. Esav was not able to detect Yaakov Avinu because the fact that Yaakov was sitting in the yeshiva was not in the open document. How else did God hide the learning of Yaakov Avinu? He did the following scientific um, procedure. See, if you take the two parshios that discuss Yaakov, Toldois and Ayitze, and you fuse them together, and you create a concealment in these parshios, that will then bring down to the world a concealment and a cloud over Yaakov Avinu that nobody could see him, nobody knows where he is. He said, what does the Chumash have to do with Yaakov Avinu being able to be seen or not? The answer is, the Torah... It's not a document recording history. It's not some old book that we read that tells us stories about what happened 3,300 years ago. It's a living document. This is the building block of creation and history. And the way Hashem hid Yaakov Avinu is by fusing together the parshios, and now nobody could see Yaakov Avinu. Let's talk a little bit about Tarach. Tarach is walking around Mesopotamia. He's 145 years old. He's playing cards with his friends. He's sipping tea. And nobody ever says, Hey, Tarach, your, your son Avraham just forsook you. He just left you. Nobody, nobody was even bothered by that. Nobody, nobody's bothered by that. Because as it's recorded in the Chumash, it says Tarach died. 
And if it says in the document, Terach died, then it is sort of concealed from the consciousness of man, the reality that Terach is still alive. Because the reality of creation is not determined by what we see with our eyes. The reality of creation is determined by the way it's recorded in the blueprint and in the, in the official document, the architectural plans. And people don't really recognize and perceive the life of Terach. And nobody attends the funeral of Rivka Imenu. How could that be nobody attends? Don't they see in the newspaper, Rivka is dead, Rivka died, she lived 117 years, not, nobody knows. It doesn't say it in the Chumash, it's not recognizable, it's not perceivable by the eyes of flesh and blood. The Torah is the blueprint of creation. When we say that Bereshis is the book of Yitzira, the book of creation, it literally is the document that HaKadosh Baruch Hu used to create the world. I'll give you another example of this. This is a contemporary example, relatively. In the year 1240, it was only yesterday, 24 carton loads of Talmud, handwritten uh, Talmud, were burnt in the streets of France. And this was a terrible tragedy for the Jewish people because in the 13th century, a handwritten Talmud could take an entire year to write. And this was pretty much the majority of the Gemaras that existed in the world, and uh, they were burnt in the streets of France. And this is so tragic, the rabbis wanted to determine, via the heavens, why they were being punished in this way. So they did a procedure called She'elas Chaloim, where they conversed with the heavens through a dream. Don't try this at home. It's a very dangerous procedure. But there is such a procedure where you could commune with the heavens via a dream. And they received the following three-letter response. Da Gezeras Oiraisa. This is the decree of the Torah. Now, Da Gezeras Oiraisa is the, are the words of Targum on the opening Psukim of Parshas Chukas, Zois Chukas HaTorah. And the rabbis determined that this was a decree from heaven. And that was the response that they received. Da Gezeras Oiraisa. And they determined further that since the day of the week that you read the words, Zoy's Chukas HaTorah, are Erev Shabbos Parshas Chukas, they established a fast day on the day before Shabbos Parshas Chukas, and until today, Jews, there are many Jews around the world that fast Erev Shabbos Parshas Chukas because of the tragedy of the burning of the 24 cartloads of Talmud in the streets of France. So the Magen Avram, one of the great classic commentaries on Shulchan Aruch, by the way, the Magen Avram is the most concise of all the commentaries on Shulchan Aruch. The Magen Avram was so poor that he wrote Magen Avram on the walls of his home because he couldn't afford paper. The Magen Avram says, the reason they fast on Erev Shabbos, usually the rabbis don't make fast days by the day of the week, they make it by the day of the month. There's no Jewish holiday that is on a, a specific day of the week. It goes by the, month, the monthly calendar. The Magen Avram says the reason why they tro- chose Erev Shabbos is because the rabbis determined that what caused this tragedy was the day that those words of the parsha were read from the Torah. And since those words are usually studied on Erev Shabbos, the words, Zois Chukas HaTorah, therefore they determined that day caused it because that's when we read from the parsha. So what do we see from this Magen Avram? 
that not only are the words of the Torah contributing to creation and contributing to history, but the timing of when the words of the Torah are read also determine the events of that week. In other words, if you wanted to know what's going to happen today, by studying the Torah portion of Parshas Vayetze relevant to Sunday, you'll know everything that's going to happen. You know whether your team will win or lose. You'll know whether the stock market will go up or down. You'll know whether you'll have a good lunch or not. Everything you need to know is in the document. It's a living document. It's not an archaic document. It's the Torah's Chaim. So let's conclude with one last thought. The opening Pasuk that we just read this past Shabbos, Ve'ela Taldois Yitzchak Ben Avraham, Avraham Haylid S. Yitzchak. And these are the children of Yitzchak, the son of Avraham. Avraham was the father of Yitzchak. And Rashi's bother, this is the most repetitious verse we've ever come across. These are the children of Yitzchak, the son of Avraham. Avraham was the father of Yitzchak. I mean, come on, once you know that Yitzchak's the son of Avraham, obviously Avraham is the father of Yitzchak. So Rashi says the, the generation had late sanim. You know what late sanim are? Like the peanut gallery. You know, the, they, only in America they have... The, the late sanim are the two guys in the back of the shore that are always joking around. They're always making fun. They're always mocking. You don't have that in England? It's unbelievable. You guys are... Late sanim are jokers, scoffers. <laughs> when Yitzchak was born... The joker said, huh, yeah, right. Abraham at age 100 and Sarah at age 90, yeah, they had a kid. That's a good one. Now good, that's a good one. Now, what else do you want to spin? What other stories do you got? There's no way. One second. Sarah's married to Avram for 100 years. They don't have a kid. She spends one night with Avimelech and all of a sudden, Mazel Tov! They said, Avram's not the kid's father. Avimelech, who abducted Sarah, he's the father. So therefore God made a miracle. God fashioned the face of Yitzchak to look exactly like Avraham. So therefore when we report, these are the children of Yitzchak, the son of Avraham, everybody knew that Avraham gave birth to Yitzchak because Yitzchak was the spitting image of Avraham. So nobody could say that Avimelech is the father when Yitzchak looks identically to. So we tend to read the Pasuk that where is it alluded to in the Chumash that Yitzchak looked like Avraham, in the extra words, Avraham hoilides Yitzchak, because it already said Yitzchak's the son of Avraham. Why does it have to say Avraham's the father of Yitzchak? That alludes to this miracle that Hashem fashioned the face of Yitzchak to look like Avraham. That's not how to understand it. How did God make Yitzchak look exactly like Avraham? What, was, what, me, what tools of plastic surgery did God use to make Yitzchak's face look exactly like Avraham? The answer is he does everything with the words of the Torah. By writing in the document the extra words, Avraham hoiled as Yitzchak, that changed the reality that now Yitzchak looks exactly like Avraham Avinu. So this should cause us to have a completely different perspective of the events and the episodes that we read in the Chumash. The Ramban writes in his introduction to the Chumash, Nachmanides writes, that every event that ever happened and will happen in world history 
are alluded to in the letters, in the combinations of letters, in the crowns of the letters, in the nekudos of the letters, in the musical notes of the letters. Every detail of Torah is significant, is eternally significant, has tremendous value. We are entitled to ask and try to understand every nuance of Torah because this is not ancient information, this is contemporary information. This is information that governs and controls the events of history, the events of our lives, and the future events of the entire Jewish people from the beginning of time until Yemos HaMashiach. And uh, we're so fortunate that God gave us this document. This document is what breathes life into our life. The Torah is Kihem Chayenu You know, what we say every single day. The Torah is our life. It's not po- we're not being poetic. We're saying literally, for a Jew, the definition of life is being able to study the Torah. So how fortunate we are to be able to come together this morning. Thank you so much for your kind attention and for inviting me here this morning. I wish you all bracha v'hatzlacha. And uh, until next time, thank you so much. Thank you. Questions? Sure. Anyone have any questions? Of our existence? Of our existence, and particularly of the Jews' existence. So did I misunderstand that? Or? No, you understood that very clearly. Um, and that is um, a fundamental teaching of our tradition, that the purpose of this world is to overcome the challenges that we're given and to observe the mitzvot in order to earn... The reward, now the afterlife includes many dimensions. It includes this, the life of the soul in Shamayim, being able to connect with Hashem. You see, our body is like a, is like a suit. It's like, for instance, somebody puts their hand in an oven. Heaven forbid, they could burn their hand. If they're wearing, you know, those gloves, what do they call them here? You're wearing the oven gloves. Your hands are not going to burn, but they get a little bit warm but you're basically protected. So in this world, when a person does a good deed, when a person does a mitzvah, they can't fully um, appreciate and experience the joy of connecting to God because we have this body that's like the oven glove and doesn't allow us to feel the raw pleasure of coming closer to to Hashem. When you take off that oven glove, when a person uh, passes on, then that's where we receive the great reward of the afterlife or vice versa. Now, there's ultimately be a time where the soul reunites with the body, and that's um, back here in this world in time of Tchiyas HaMesim, the resurrection of the dead. But the purpose of our life is to earn the reward of the afterlife.
Yes. Um, I'm still bothered a bit about the Torah being understood and known. So, okay, so, okay, let me, let me clarify that. In the times of Terach, it's not like his friends were reading the Torah and, and, and the Torah said that Terach died and therefore they look at him and they think he's dead even though they see him because they're reading in the Torah. They never saw the Torah. The Torah is not available to them. But there is this document in the hands of the Creator, which is the architectural plans of creation. And it says Terach died even though he didn't. The fact that that's recorded that way created a certain concealment in the times of Terach that it didn't really dawn on people to criticize Avram for leaving him because people are not going to say they left a living Terach because in the official document in the library of Congress upstairs it says that Terach is dead. Is that? It's not in their consciousness. It's, it's not, not in their Torah. So, yeah. so I have a follow-up question to that which is bothering me. Was, um, how does that then relate to free will? Because if it's written in the Torah the way things are and a reality, that seems to imply we have no influence on that reality. Indeed, you're saying that people weren't even conscious of Terach's existence because God somehow removed it from their consciousness, even though Terach was clearly there. <clears throat> so I'm wondering whether, and people couldn't overcome that because God brought that consciousness so that's a very good question. How, how, if it says in the document that the Jews committed a certain sin or they did a certain mitzvah, that means they had no free choice because it's already recorded in the document. So, the way it's recorded in the document allows for a certain degree of flexibility. Namely, it may not say in the document the letter combination that the Jews did this in sin. The letters appear possibly in a mixed up form. And then when they later do the act, they combine the letters to read a certain way. But this is one of the great mysteries of how does God know the future and yet allow us to have free choice. So I see in the few minutes I have to answer questions, all the great challenges of life are... Uh, being hurled at me. <laughs> Can I, um, uh, to address this gentleman's question regarding uh, the role of the afterlife in Judaism, if I could humbly uh, suggest that um, you research a certain work that speaks about this extensively. The name of it is Mesilas Yisharim, Path of the Just, which is available in Hebrew and English. And um, he clarifies what the Torah perspective is on the afterlife and its role in, in, our, in, our, in our current life. Mesilas Yisharim, the path of the just. It seems we're doing mid-spot, not altruistically, for the benefit of... Uh, That's right. Mind, but in order to get a reward in the afterlife. True. Brahms does not like that. We do. We do mitzvot to be able to get the afterlife. But that's not the highest level. But for starters, definitely. Yeah. In Parshas Lechacha we read, God loves Abraham because Abraham tells his children to do the mitzvot so that God could reward you. That's why we do them. Now ultimately we want to graduate to a level of doing the mitzvot because it's a, it's a privilege, it's an honor, it's a... 
It's a zuchut. It's something that uh, gives us satisfaction, uh, irrespective of any reward that we're going to get. But from God's perspective, He wants us to do the mitzvot so that we can get the afterlife. In other words, a parent wants their child to do what's right. The parent wants to give the kid a birthday present, a Hanukkah present. The parent wants to shower on the kid good. So the parent wants the child to be successful to be able to receive the reward. So from God's perspective, He's rooting us on. He's saying, do as many mitzvot as possible so I could reward you. So actually, the highest level of service of Hashem is we want to do the mitzvot, not because we want the afterlife. We want to because we want to make God happy to be able to give us the reward as a parent rewards a child. That's the highest level, even higher than the level of the Rambam. This is what Rav Chaim writes. Yeah. No, the Rambam says. No, the Rambam says exactly that. He says, do what's right because it's right. No, it's exactly the Yeah, but there happens to be even a higher level than that. But okay. Which is what? Which is, I'm doing the mitzvot to get reward. Why? Because I know it makes. Him happy, not because it makes me happy. <laughs> yes. Sorry, they keep on. Uh... <laughs> this is more like a kind of an observation than anything from a fellow American. Um, I have many Jewish friends who are like sort of Buddhist, not affiliated at all, because they don't see Judaism as spiritual, and they just see it as like you know the six hundred and thirteen minutes vote and that sort of thing. Um, and if you look at the Buddhists. Um, who have brought meditation to America, they're, they're almost exclusively Jewish. And my, my observation is that it's more of this Alamabad discussion and spirituality were, were talked about more or more overt. I think we went to lost so many people that are looking for that. I, I think that's a very um, important observation. Sometimes the overarching objective gets lost in the minutia. Yeah. Oh, don't try this at home. Yeah, we can't. We can't do that. Uh, well, she wants to try that. <laughs> yeah. Why not? Well, if, if we have, it was a very ancient vehicle. Yeah. That has been very helpful three generations, and if it was helpful then, and this was in the year 1240. That was a very long time ago. 1240. That was like before last week. Mm-hmm. That's your interest in it. That, it's sort of greater than me uh-huh. because it's not my experience. So, um, Here's the issue. Here's the issue with dreams. Back in the day, when people did not carry around the smartphone and they did not watch television and movies, so their minds were basically focused on true ideals, so their dreams were more accurate and had more truth to it. Nowadays, when our minds are filled with so many external sights and sounds and, and images, the dreams basically will be influenced by what you see during the course of the day. So it's very hard today to take a dream seriously. The Talmud tells us, Ein chalom below Most dreams, most of the dream is going to be nonsense. There will only be a kernel of truth. And to be able to 
filter out that kernel, that requires a, a great proficiency. Now, in order to commune via a dream, there are a lot of preparation necessary, and it could be a dangerous uh, procedure, as you have to be accessing the right forces. You don't want to cross paths and, and start communing with the dark side. Now, today, the dark side is much more available than the good team. So, this is beyond my pay grade. I don't go there. <laughs> and... Um, Maybe you could bring in an expert in dreams. That's not my proficiency. Yes? You said, if I understood you correctly, that God used the Torah as his architectural plan for building the world. Correct. But God didn't need the Torah to do that. God could have done it on his own without this architectural plan. And in any event, who wrote the Torah? It was God. So God already had the content of the Torah, even though it hadn't been turned into an architect's plan. Correct. Even the phraseology that we use, that God used the Torah to create the world, these are just words. Because God is, he, he, he wrote it, as you mentioned. But even an architect who has in his mind the architectural plans, he's still going to draw it out and use what he drew to be able to create the world. So God wrote the Torah, but ultimately it was this document that he, tr- he wants us to relate to. This is not reality. God doesn't need to do anything to create the world. But the way God wants us to relate to His creation of the world is that He created a document called the Torah and He used this document to create the world. This is the way we relate to Hashem's creation. But we, we can't perceive the essence of God. We can only relate to Him the way He allows us to relate to Him as described in, in the Torah itself. Slight spin-off question, but connected to what was discussed. Uh, so of the uh, forefathers and the matriarchs, it's quite clear that the deaths of most of them are recorded someplace other than the Torah. Rivka, admittedly, only by reference, as mentioned before. I'm sure this question is dealt with somewhere earlier. Uh, Raphael's death is obviously described uh, in detail on the road. The of Leah is not described anywhere at all. All six of our kids, Ruben, Tizabullin included, obviously, Yosef might not have been happy with Shimon and Levi for putting him in the pit, but effectively none of them were in the Aesop League. Uh, how come it's not described anywhere in the Torah? Good question. One approach is, Leah is the mother of the main body of the Jewish people. We today are all descendants of Leah. And so long as the children live, the mother is still alive. But then how do you explain the other mothers that their deaths are given? It's asymmetric. 
Leah is the more direct mother. You, you know, you can only have one mother. <laughs> Thank you, everybody. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'll tell you. Thank you. What's your name? Mark. Thank you. Nice to meet you. Daniel. Daniel, how are you? You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.